Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, with soaring rents and housing prices, will housing be a major election issue? Global News has obtained the signatories that signed off and registered the People's Party of Canada, and among them, a former neo-Nazi and a former member of the Soldiers of Odin. Also, Ukraine scandal continues to rage around Donald Trump. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, the election coming up on October 21st, and uh, well, depending on whom you are talking to at the time, you're going to get different stories, I think, from just about everybody about one of the key election issues. Uh, obviously, some people think it's uh, individuals themselves and their personalities, others will point to uh, the economy, but housing is one that's not getting a whole lot of attention, uh, much to the surprise of an awful lot of us. A uh, survey released over the weekend says that uh, actually soaring rents and house prices in Canadian cities are actually becoming a key election issue. I'm not so sure the politicians have keyed into that. <laughs> I want to bring Tom Cooper from the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction into the conversation. Thanks for coming in today. Hey, good to see you, Bill. Uh, you've got a house, I've got a house, so we're looked after, but there's an awful lot of people over there in, in this community. Our, 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 my son and his wife were over to our place last night for dinner, yeah. and that, that was the topic of the conversation for a good part of the evening. Uh, they're renting right now, they want to buy a house, yeah. and it's it's next to impossible for an awful lot of people these days. It is, and it's really that huge down payment, and we've seen housing prices soar uh, over the last, particularly the last five years. Here in Hamilton, in the GTA, in, in many other Canadian communities, and it's becoming out of reach uh, for many people who are interested in, in purchasing. And and so that creates a, uh, a real issue um, in terms of affordability on the lower end of the rental housing spectrum because more people are staying in rental accommodations longer um, because they can't afford to buy a house. And and what that means is if you're not having new rental apartments built, it becomes much more difficult to find affordable accommodation for people. And, and so there's a huge challenge for many people, um, certainly not just lower income Canadians, uh, but middle middle class Canadians as well are are finding it's almost impossible to to reach that dream of of owning their own home. Well, and there's a couple of issues there that uh, that you've raised, and let's let's talk about those. And one is rental properties. First of all, I don't know anybody who's building apartment rent units these days. It just doesn't seem to happen. I know we had a plethora of them, and we know there's little clusters of them all over the town. Mohawk Road up in the mountain, of yep. course, in the downtown core. But I don't see very much in the way of new development. No. And that was in the 60s and 70s. And that's when governments actually stepped in and created incentives for developers to come and build. Uh, That just hasn't been the case anymore. And the the tax incentives, I'm no expert on this, but the tax incentives from what I understand are are really more directed to building those single uh, family homes as well as condos. So we've seen a huge number of condo developments and often... Uh, we will see speculators come in, purchase those condo units, and then try to rent those out at, at huge, huge rents. Um, so it's becoming really challenging uh, because the affordability uh, gap is, is, is really widening. And uh, for, many, uh, for many people, particularly millennials, uh, so younger people in their 20s and 30s, uh, they don't have the same type of stable jobs that maybe uh, we and our parents enjoyed in the past. So they're mo- often moving from contract to contract. Often full-time jobs just aren't there for people. So they're, they're working two, maybe three part-time jobs, cobbling together 15 hours here, 20 hours there. But it's nowhere near enough uh, to be able to uh, get that money for a down payment. Um, you're barely hanging on trying to afford the rent uh, you're paying now, um, there's no hope of, of saving money to, to purchase your own home. So given this dilemma, and it, you're right, it's a two-headed monster. It's it's not just the price of the of the house or whatever it is that you want to buy. It's the down payment that's required. Why is government making it even more difficult to qualify then? Yeah, a- exactly. I, I think there was, again, I'm no expert. I, I, I think there was probably a lot of concern with the burst of the housing bubble in the United States almost a decade ago, which caught, you know, was in part uh, the cause of the, uh, the recession. Um, so I think, uh, I, I think that made a lot of people nervous and, and 
put in place some restrictions uh, that make it much more difficult to uh, for people to own a home. We also know Canadians are, are more in debt today than they have ever been. And so it becomes much more difficult to qualify for a mortgage as well if you have uh, a lot of credit card debt and, and other debts piling up, particularly, again, for young people, for millennials, student debts. And it's uh, it's just becoming more and more challenging. And that's why we need a broad range of housing options for people. And not everybody is, is going to want or need to own a house immediately, but we do need affordable rental options. And, and that, unfortunately, has been quite silent during the uh, federal election. Well, and we just mentioned they're not building a whole lot of units these days. Uh, the other element to that, too, is that enough people that some people that own rental units are now converting them uh, into um, whatever they want to do with them, and in some cases sell them, what the case might be. And you're getting people that are getting uh, reno evicted now. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm, I'm the, uh, listen, Mr. Cooper, I, I, I'm, I'm going to do a renovation. I want to tear this wall up and put this in. So you're going to have to leave my my building now because yeah. I want to do this. So where do you go? Yeah, exactly. And it's a huge issue here in Hamilton. The good folks at Hamilton Community Legal Clinic have been helping lots and lots of tenants who have fallen into that position. I talk uh, I talk to their lawyers and legal workers quite often. They are uh, they're inundated uh, with issues of in requests coming from tenants who, who are facing just that very situation. Um, a landlord comes in, you know, often from Toronto. I won't pick on Toronto, but um, often we'll see we'll see a outside landlord coming in, purchasing a property, and then wanting to up the rent. But in order to do that, they need to, to renovate the unit. So they will offer basically a buyout package to the existing tenants there. And, um, you know, if you're looking at uh, the possibility of getting uh, $2,000 uh, to move to a new place, that may seem in the short term like maybe not too bad of an idea, but looking at the actual rental market, it, uh, it's very difficult to find uh, any new affordable units in Hamilton uh, that, uh, that meet your needs. So if, you're, if you do take that renovation package, it, it's probably not likely going to uh, put you in a position where you're doing better off financially. No, I'm not going to ask you to answer on behalf of the government. But again, I, I'm frustrated by the fact that there seems to be a great deal of inaction. In other words, they're sticking with the same model that we've always used here and, and expecting that it's just going to get better. Because, well, it's, it did sometimes in the past. Yeah. Why aren't we looking at, at how we buy houses? Uh, the way mortgages are structured, for instance. Yeah. And because the banks are happy about this. I mean, they love the fact that every five years you're going to have to renew and the rate's going to change. Uh, there are other places where you're locked in for the entire term of, of the mortgage. There are others, of course, in some places in the States uh, where you can actually, you can, you can, well, you get money back for your mortgage. It's, it's a tax deductible situation. Yep. Now, I don't know whether, I, I'm not going to get into the numbers about whether or not that's a good idea or a bad idea, because I've heard arguments on both sides of this, but we don't seem to be looking at that and saying the, the, maybe, maybe the problem is how these things are financed. Yeah, exactly. And the liberals have come in, uh, in the last six months or so with their new housing plan, which, which goes a little bit of the way towards helping new home uh, new homeowners uh, purchase either a brand new uh, property or or purchasing a, a pre-owned uh, standalone house, and and it is helping a little bit with the. Uh, I, I think it's probably coming into effect this month, and uh, should go a, li- a little way to helping with that affordability gap. Um, but again, it's it's nowhere near enough. And um, you know some of the some of the conversations that have been going on during the federal election. Uh, the Liberals have committed to 100,000 uh, new affo- new affordable housing units over the next uh, over the next decade. The NDP has suggested 500,000 over that same period, which seems far more realistic. But I, I think both of them are probably below the below the mark because we know uh, more and more Canadians are are going to uh, need these affordable housing options. And, and you're absolutely right. We haven't done that innovative thinking on on how we can ensure that people aren't spending 50 60 percent of their uh income on, on their housing which is very common today yeah i'm not suggesting this is a very complex problem i'm not suggesting that there's a, a simple solution to this but there are some elementary things that need to be addressed and should be addressed and we've talked with well tim hudak the the former pc leader here in ontario who's now the ceo for the the realtors of ontario 
Uh, and, and Tim said, look, at the, the first start uh, stop, is, is more stock. He says, yep. you want housing prices to go down? Build more houses. Yep. Right now, you know, I mean, we, we're throwing them up here, but they're not enough. They're not the kinds of houses that we need. They're not affordable. It's, it's like anything. I mean, it's the, the, the old law of supply and demand. If there's a lot more supply, then all of a sudden the price is going to go down. And that yep. may, may be bad news for the builders and maybe for realtors. I don't know. But the fact is that more people will buy houses if they're more affordable and if there's more choice. Yeah, and it doesn't need uh, to be monster homes. You know, there's there's a range of housing options out there for different size families at different points in their lives. Um, and I, I think we need to recognize that too. And, and sure, there's probably more money for developers in, in building the monster homes, but I think we need... Uh, particularly when we're looking at um, infill in, in communities, ensuring that uh, there's the availability of housing stock. And, and we don't necessarily need 3,000 3, square foot um, uh, properties. You know, for many families, 1,000, 1,200 feet are going to do fine. And, and so we should be looking at that. But again, I think looking, when we look at Europe, uh, you know, particularly uh, Berlin, I think, has been fairly innovative in this way and ensuring that uh, there's a wealth of rental housing options out there that people want to live in. And and as as you indicated before, a lot of the rental housing here in Hamilton was built in the 1960s and, and 1970s. You know, it's starting to deteriorate and and maybe it's not the type of housing that uh, that some families want to live in. So we need to look at creating that new uh, want-to-live-in uh, affordable housing option. But that's another part of the phenomena here that I think we have to address. Uh, there was a time uh, in the circle of life when it came to real estate, the rental was how you started. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you gravitated and you bought a property, et cetera, et cetera. But there are a lot more people these days now that, that choosing rent as, as that's how they want to live. Exactly. They want, they want to have that, that idea to, okay, we can pick up and move or go someplace else if we need to do something like that. And there isn't enough stock for those. And then those who want to break into the market at that level can't find anywhere to go. Exactly. Yeah, and it's not just a ha- uh, an issue here in Hamilton or in Toronto or in Vancouver. Uh, from what I've read, this is an issue that's happening right across the country, and it's something that our federal politicians really need to be paying more attention to. Here in Hamilton, I, I, I think it's around 30 35% of, of all voters are, are renters, they're tenants. And, and, but their issues aren't often talked about in, in these types of, uh, in, ty- in these types of situations during federal elections. And, and so we do need, uh, we do need those concerns brought to the fore, I think. But there's got to be a cooperative effort. I know that, that somebody's going to make, I, I think you know, at one time between now and October 21st, they're all going to come up with their quote unquote housing policy. Uh, but the federal government and the provincial government have to work together on this stuff. And as long yeah. as there's this, this, you know, combative attitude between the two levels of government, and there seems to be with a number of provinces right now, it's it's next to impossible to come up with a strategy that's going to work. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And some of the policies our current provincial government are pursuing are, are creating it much are creating a much more difficult situation for for tenants so certainly uh, looking at even just social assistance rates we know people who are on the lower end of the income spectrum who might for whatever reason or another not be able to work not be able to find a job um, are getting very low rates on social assistance that come nowhere close uh, to being able to find uh, rental accommodations in the city a average average Ontario works rate in in Ontario right now is, is $730. Try to find even a one-bedroom apartment for that in Hamilton and then try to afford food and clothing and hygiene products and everything else you need in your life to try to get a job. Um, so it's it's not working, unfortunately, and you're absolutely right. Our, our provincial government needs to work much more closely with, with the feds, uh, particularly on housing. We've done some innovative things here in Hamilton. As, as you'll recall, the mayor and uh, Councillor Collins came up with a, a really good and innovative idea to spend uh, $50 million from the hydro fund uh, to renovate social housing here in Hamilton. So that that's in the process right now, but it, it, it is just a drop it, it, in it the bucket. A, it is. It's a great idea, and, and I applaud Council for that initiative. But the fact is, is you can't put the bear, the burden of, of affordable housing on the local tax base. Yep. You just can't do that. I mean, that's 
th- th- those are the people that are being injured by this in the first place because of the property taxes, and that's a problem for an awful lot of people as well. They can't afford to stay in the house in which they're in because of rising property taxes. You can't say, okay, I'm going to double down on that now because we need to build affordable housing. The feds have got to step up here. Yeah, absolutely, and and, and so does the municipality as well. And when we're building new developments, uh, like the one down at the harbor, I, I think we need more options for lower-income residents. Uh, mixed income communities are the healthiest communities. It's not good to have the ghettoization of, of poor people living in one area of the city and, and more affluent people living in, in other areas. I, I think we can do better. And I think we can put a range of housing options out there uh, for people. And and so when developers are starting to build uh, new developments in areas around the city, let's ensure a certain percentage of that goes to uh, more affordable housing options for people um, on all ends of the spectrum. It's it's the I guess one of the most basic needs that we have. I mean, if you don't have a roof over your head, I mean, everything else starts to crumble. I mean, you know, that's yeah. that's what causes stress levels, and there can be employment problems, any number of situations like this. And I'm starting to see uh, a gravitation right now of what we saw some time ago, where people that are f- having trouble getting into this are now saying, maybe I'm going to have to move. Yep. Maybe you're going to have to go to, to wherever, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, or someplace like that. Well, by the way, the prices are starting to go up there, too, now. They are. They so, are. so there's there's no safe harbor here, really. Yeah, and I'm hearing that more and more here in Hamilton as well, that people are being priced out of their neighborhoods, and, and it's a travesty. Or, the, or their cities. Exactly. And uh, Hamilton used to be a place where it was considered more affordable, and so in the past, people from Toronto would, would move here Um uh, because of uh, lower cost of housing, particularly, that's not the case anymore. Um, we're seeing people here in Hamilton almost being forced out of our communities uh, because of gentrification. And 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 as you referenced earlier, some of the rent evictions that are taking place by by some of these big landlords. Well, and you're getting into a situation right now where it's starting to spread. Um, you know, the, we covered the story a couple of years ago, but people that were getting forced out of here because they couldn't afford housing, so they'd go to places like Cayuga or Dunville mm-hmm. or, or you know, yep. Hagersville, any place like that. But now that's becoming a problem there. Yeah. Uh, plus, on top of that, I mean, f- for people that are urban planners, if your job's in Hamilton, you move out there, and they're all lovely towns, yeah. uh, but they, that's a commute, yeah. which is going to only increase your cost of living. Now you're going to have to pay for fuel. It's more wear and tear on your vehicle. Uh, it, it's, it's exacerbating the problem, not solving it. Yeah. And in the short term, governments can also be looking at housing allowances. So it's going to take a while, obviously, to build new affordable housing. Um, but one way people can help find different housing options is, is through housing allowances. So th- there's been some talk about doing that at the federal level, some talk about doing that at the provincial level as well. As a matter of fact, council's looking at that very issue for what we talked about, that group uh, uh, of parents who are being cut off the transition child benefit. And so our council may be looking at uh, a special housing allowance for the, for those very vulnerable families to, to maintain housing. Well, there are options, and I want to hear a debate and a discussion from the leaders about this too, whether it's going to be geared to income, rents, any number of different things. But just try to find some solutions here instead of kicking you down the road. Uh, Tom, thanks as always. Great having you in here again. Thank you, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Global News has obtained the signatories that signed off uh, to register the People's Party of Canada. You may remember that uh, to become an official party, you have to have so many signatories uh, in support of this. 250, I think, was the number. Uh, but Global has actually uh, obtained these names and, and done a little bit of research right now. Uh, they include a former leader of U.S. neo-Nazi group, a former soldier of Odin, and uh, some other rather uh, questionable uh, people, I guess, and questionable backgrounds. Uh, it's raised the ire and the attention of an awful lot of people, including uh, the Ca- Canadian Anti-Hate Network. Bertie Farber is the chair of that group, of course, the Canadian Anti-Hate Network, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Bertie, good morning. How are you today? Good morning, Bill. I'm, I'm just fine. How are you? Good. Uh, uh, troubled good. by this, of course. I mean, there's been a lot of speculation, Bernie, ever since uh, Maxine Bernier decided he was going to split off and form his own party. Uh, and based on a number of the policy planks that he had talked about, you wondered, okay, what kind of people are going to be attracted to this? This is, uh, this is kind of troubling. Well, it's troubling. It's, uh, I, I can't tell you that I find it surprising, to be honest. I mean, he, uh, Mr. Bernier has been pretty clear during the course uh, of the campaign and even before it as to the kinds of positions that he's taking, uh, anti-immigrant positions, uh, positions that I, I think can be classified as Islamophobic. Um, and, and we have seen a trend towards those on the extreme right. Um, you know, embracing Mr. Uh, Mr. Bernier's uh, platform and Mr. Bernier himself. 
Um, so, you know, that a guy like Sean Walker um, and the fellow from the Soldiers of Odin and Pegida are uh, of his top backers, I, I don't think people should find that surprising. Um, it, it is what it is, as they say. Well, and, and again, I, I'm not one to paint everybody with the same brush here. I'm not suggesting that everybody who supports it or is a member of the People's Party of Canada uh, shares the views of, of the three people you just mentioned here. But uh, you you, you got to wonder uh, about what's going to be happening here because, I mean, some of the characterizations here, as you've already mentioned, Bernie, are white supremacists. Uh, now, they don't like to have that label, but, I mean, you know, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck. Well, exactly. And anti-Islamophobic yeah. uh, feelings that are going on right these days. And uh, you wonder if, if how that's going to impact, I guess, especially, I, well, we're going to get a full force of that in the next little while because he's going to be involved in the leaders' debates. Well, and, and that's just it. What, what this does, really, if you want to take a look at it you know, more globally, if I could put it that way, is that um, it, it kind of normalizes extreme hatred. Uh, so in, instead of marginalizing somebody like Bernier, uh, we, uh, we, we give him the status of a political party, and then we take that and, and put it onto a stage with, uh, where he will be debating credible, legitimate leaders of national parties and, you know, what does that say to the electorate? If he's on the same stage with Justin Trudeau and uh, Andrew Scheer and Jagmeet Singh and Elizabeth May, that says he is on an equal footing with them. Given the fact that, uh, you know, these three individuals specifically uh, who are without quite, well, at least one for sure, Sean Walker, uh, you know, with, with his ties to the National Alliance, of that there is no question. Um, soldiers of Odin, the same thing. I mean, these, you know, th that group comes from a white supremacist background. They can make all kinds of excuses that, you know, they're not the same that they were before. We have no, we have no information to lead us to believe that. But what it does in the long run is it normalizes these people. And that's what's been happening, Bill, and you and I have been talking about this, sadly, more than I think both of you, both of us want to. But this we're seeing more and more and more. And to me, this is the extremity of society. This is where we should be re relegating groups like the PPC and the Canadian Nationalist Party and, and others that propagate this kind of racism and antagonism, but instead we're, draw we're drawing them more into the middle. And that, frankly, quite scares me. Well, but as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, it, it really shouldn't, I guess, to many of us, be surprising. I mean, when, you, when you've got a guy like Donald Trump that's, you know, there's good people on both sides, that, that tends to give legitimacy to these people and their cause, doesn't it? Yeah, well, that's quite, you know, if you take a look at this, that is where it, it began. Prior to the Trump election, these people were on the periphery. Uh, maybe we didn't pay them enough mind, and maybe this is a wake-up call to all of us, but the fact of the matter is that with Trump's ascendancy to the uh, presidency of the United States, a man who has been embraced by white supremacists in the United States, by members of the Ku Klux Klan, by neo-Nazis, and a man, as you quite uh, rightly remind us, uh, said that as far as he's concerned, both the left and the right, there, there are good people on, on both you know, the neo-Nazi front and the other front. That's absurd. There, there's no such thing as a good white supremacist or neo-Nazi. These are hateful, spiteful people. And the very fact that they have now creeped their way from south of the border uh, to north of their border to Canada, uh, I think has to, has to con concern all of us. And by the way, you know, in, in any country, whether it's the United States or Canada, there will be that small element of society that will always cling to these people. So we are going to get maybe, I don't know what the percentage is, but in the United States we're seeing that it's as high as at least 30% of the American electorate are still, despite everything Trump has done and everything he has said, are still prepared to vote for him. I hope that Canada is different. I hope that we're not going to see that kind of a 30% jump to the PPC. I doubt it. But if we see 10%, even 5%, we're, we're talking about a few million people who might very well be willing to put an X beside the name of, uh, you know, of, uh, of Maxime Bernier, who is surrounded, accepted, and embraced by some of the worst elements in Canadian society. Well, if, if not the elements themselves, certainly some of the ideologies, and I think that's the concern that a, a lot of people would have. Uh, not surprisingly, though, Bernie, I've seen some online comments uh, after the story broke from Global News over the weekend that said, look, this is supposed to be the land of free speech. These guys have a right to have a voice, too. 
Oh, they have a right, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, they, they are a, legit, a legitimate political party. I mean, you know, I would argue that somewhere down the line we need to have better regulations and rules as to who and what becomes a political party. Right, right now we have um, at least one known neo-Nazi organization that is a, a legitimate cl- a political party, meaning you can actually give money to them and, and receive a charitable receipt. Um, really, it, it's like uh, the Wild West out there. Anybody can run as long as you get 250 signatures. Um, so the bottom line is, yes, people can form parties. People can have free speech in this country as long as it doesn't cross the hate line, and we do have laws. But on the other hand, we don't have to give them a stage from which to speak on. There, there's, not, there's nothing that says that we must do that, that we must give them that stage. That, you know, that's a decision that people reach on, on their own. So the free speech is allowed, but you know, it doesn't mean that I have to open up my home to these people. Well, and, and I'm concerned about where this is going to take the political debate and, and the narrative of not just this campaign, but I guess future campaigns. I mean, are we going to start talking about issues like that, about immigrants taking jobs away from people that really deserve them here? And, and you've heard that kind of rhetoric, and it seems to be, you know, it seems to be ramping up now, Bernie. Yeah, it, 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 it already started. Uh, you, you know, you remember the, the small scandal that began with the uh, billboards that were placed in various areas uh, on the East Coast and made their way up into certain areas of Ontario, uh, these anti-immigrant... Yeah, we had, the, we had that, them in Hamilton. That's right, and that, you know, with Bernier's face and, uh, you know, his statement, he said he had nothing to do with it. Uh, okay, well, I guess you can give him the benefit of the doubt if you want to, but these are exactly his policies. You know, he wants to limit immigration. He, he has spoken out in favor of Bill 21 in Quebec. Uh, I mean, that's who this person is, and that's what this discussion is is sort of all based on. I mean, this has been one of the strangest elections that I can remember, and I go back to many, many elections. Um, But this is one election that I haven't heard much policy, but I've heard a lot of accusations back and forth against people's characters uh, in, in, in relation to, you know, racist elements. I mean, those issues certainly need need to be brought out. Um, but you know what we are what, what we are seeing is that okay, any any relationship to Faith Goldie, you know, the the, the woman with uh, uh, with these neo alleged neo Nazi ties and white supremacist ties, anybody who is caught in a picture with her, that becomes the story of the day. Uh, so there, there are all these issues breaking out right now, and we fail to speak about you know, climate change. We're not talking about the economy. We're not talking about taxation. This is, a, this is a very personal uh, uh, debate within the elections right now. And at the same time, never before in Canadian history that I can remember, are we seeing a, a, a state in which you know, alleged white supremacist groups can gain legitimacy as political parties and then be accepted, um, some of them, on, you know, on, on a stage to debate legitimate leaders. It, it's, it's kind of mind-boggling if you think about it. The uh, Global News team, by the way, went, approached uh, Elections Canada about this, and the, the, what we're talking about here is called the Ele- Canada Elections Act, which basically yep. allows this. And, and it's a rather benign response. Essentially, that organization said, we, we don't ask, we don't tell, we don't demand to get backgrounds. As long as they got the signatures, bingo, bango, you're a political party. Do we need to relook at, at the process here? Absolutely, we need to, to relook at the process. Uh, I mean, this means, uh, right now, they, they hide their uh, their true philosophies, I believe, under very kosher names. So they give themselves names like, you know, People's Party of Canada or the Canadian Nationalist Party or the Nationalist Party, whatever. Um, But what would stop a party here in Canada calling themselves the Canadian Nazi Party? And back in the 60s, there was such an entity called the Canadian Nazi Party, getting 250 names and running as a political party in this country. I mean, nothing. At this stage, you know, with the Canadian Elections Act, absolutely nothing. And most countries, most democratic countries around the world, do have regulations to ensure that those that are, you know, putting themselves forward as as uh, as, as political parties are not racist or hate-filled or or Nazi or that type of thing. Canada does not. 
And certainly this is something that I think in the next parliament has to be uh, looked at very, very closely. I, I know there's an awful lot of disturbed people in this community right now because, I mean, this, uh, elements of, of some of these groups we've just talked about here are the ones that show up at Hamilton City Hall on the weekends. Uh, yeah, and, on a and pretty people, regular basis. Uh, yeah, and, and people are troubled by their presence there. And even more trouble, I guess, by, as you've said, legitimizing that, that, that ideology by saying, okay, you're an official party now, or at least that party that, that, that Mr. Bernier leads at this point anyway, uh, may in fact uh, be, you know, be representative of some of the ideologies that these people have. And that, that, well, it, it, it's, it's bothersome. Yeah, it, 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 and it actually should be more than bothersome, not, not just to Hamiltonians, uh, because sadly Hamilton has become a bit of a, a focus for, the, for these groups. I'm not exactly sure why, uh, whether they're living in the area or whether they've just chosen Hamilton as their, you know, testing zone, but they are there and they are there, uh, you know, on a regular basis. But by the way, we see them in, in Toronto, they're seen in Ottawa, they're seen in Regina. Uh, they're, they're around, they have sort of come out of their dark basements. Um, you know, this new legitimacy, this new credibility has given them oxygen with which to breathe, and they feel comfortable. I mean, you know, we, we, we have a, another new political party called the Canadian Nationalist Party, whose leader, Trevor Payton, has actually made uh, a, an anti-Semitic video that has been viewed thousands and thousands of times on YouTube. And it's not hidden. It's, it's right in your face. Um, and, and, and he's actually being investigated by the RCMP for potential hate charges. He's the leader of a, a, of a legitimate political party in this country and he's running candidates that's what that's what the situation has now evolved into and, and i know that uh, you, as you mentioned sometimes they hide behind names like you know the the true patriots of canada or whatever uh, some of these yeah. things uh and and they feel that as if they're getting an unfair characterization from people like me in the media when with some of these discussions but uh, as you know, I mean, the, the Canadian Border Services Agency intelligence report has said that they've done some work and discovered about the soldiers of uh, eight, uh, yeah. Odin, and uh, they say they adhere to extreme right-wing ideology, not afraid to use violence. A Canadian military report about the soldiers of Odin says they are described as an anti-immigrant street patrol group uh, that started to appear in numbers here in Canada back in 2016, uh, having any racist underpinnings. Uh, uh, although that this is, they're going to deny all this stuff, but these are these are agencies that are basically in charge of our safety and they're the ones that are saying hey we got a problem here that's what i was just about to say and and y you know what bothers me and bill you and i've talked about this on a couple of occasions uh these agencies the border services agencies canadian military uh, intelligence people they have all uh you know done these studies and this is what they have found and even more ironically you know within the canadian military the military admit that there are members of these organizations that they have found to be racist and violent, um, uh, white supremacist, uh, you know, homophobic, Islamophobic, presently within the military. And I have been harping on this for months now. You know, what is the military? They tell us they're there. What is the military going to do about it? And, and we've heard nothing. And now this has escalated from reports to, uh, you know, these people feeling emboldened enough to come right out and say, you know, not only are we here, we're running for office. We want to be, we want to get into Parliament. It's mind-boggling. I just, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm left stunned. I used to think that the days of the Heritage Front were the, were the worst we were going to see in Canada. How wrong I was. Bernie, we'll stay in touch and see what our reaction is going to be over the next couple of days. Always appreciate your input. Thanks for this today. Thanks a lot, Bill. Take care. Bernie Ar uh, Farber, of course, is the chair of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. Uh, email from Alexis on this says, uh, This is the same Bernier who came within a handful of votes of becoming the leader of the Conservative Party a while back. I think he will bleed votes from them in higher numbers than we would think. That may well be the case. We'll just see who gravitates to those political philosophies. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, it was Russian involvement in the last U.S. election, uh, according to the Mueller report, and uh, the Trump administration, again, according to that report, uh, suggested the uh, Trump administration was fully expecting to benefit from uh, Russian interference in the election. Now uh, there are some strong indications that perhaps the uh, president is using the power of his incumbency to muscle Ukraine to get information on who could be his, his main rival in this election, that being Joe Biden. 
The uh, scandal around this, of course, is that Donald Trump is forcing Democrats now to confront a fateful choice on impeachment that could uh, not just shape the 2020 election, but have uh, long-lasting ramifications. Joining us to talk about this is uh, John Coloroso, who is a Ph.D. professor in anthropology and linguistics and languages and an expert on the people, the conflicts in history, and the culture, the Caucasus region of Russia, uh, and always a welcome guest on this program. John, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us again today. It's good to be back, Bill. We have, uh, we've shifted focus now from the Russian investigation, which has never really gone away, and the Russian involvement, uh, to the president now uh, uh, using what some people are considering undue pressure against Ukraine to try to, to, to get information on Biden. This is, uh, this is a pretty serious allegation. It's extremely serious, Bill. It's a transparent violation of presidential law, well, presidential limitations and, and uh, standards of conduct. Uh, it's a violation of of um, constitution, as far as I understand it. Um, and this is this is not complete yet. It's probably going to get worse because I suspect the whistleblower is talking actually about yet another phone call, and not just this one. Uh, with, to to Volodymyr uh, Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, it apparently has something to do with a call to Putin that happened a few days later. Um, and what we're seeing uh, are what I call gradual leaks. Uh, the whistleblower has friends, and he's conveyed everything to these other people, and they're gradually feeding material to the media um, and basically sending a signal to the Trump administration that you better come clean or we'll just blow it wide open. On our own, uh, <laughs> this is a, this is bad. This is um, brazen, uh, and in a way, it's a kind of natural development given the fact that Trump has not been called to account on much of anything, really. Well, and no consequences. Yeah, and therein lies part of the problem. Just for the sake of our listeners who may not be up to speed on this, uh, but the, I guess the first phase of the story, John, was last week when it was we found out that there was a whistleblower uh, who gave information. Uh, to the appropriate authorities about a, a very disturbing phone call that uh, that this whistleblower had knowledge of uh, between a high-ranking person, which now we find out is, is was Donald Trump, uh, and a member of a foreign government, which now we find out was the Ukraine government. Uh, the gist of it was, uh, I guess there was a conversation going on about a military aid package uh, that the United States had on the table for Ukraine. and, and the, a billion dollars. Yeah, and, and what the whistleblower is suggesting here is that Trump basically said, if you want this money, then you got to dig up some dirt on Joe Biden for me. Mm-hmm. Well, he was actually seeking dirt on Hunter Biden. Uh, yeah, this, well, Joe Biden's son, yeah. Son, yeah, who was on Budisma, uh, an energy group, Ukrainian energy group. Um, there are other people on this. There's a Kofor Black on this, a former CIA counterterrorism um, uh, figure. There's a, the former Pol- uh, Polish president's on the board of directors. Hunter Biden was only on for a few years, and then I think voluntarily stepped down. Um, he probably should not have been there. He may have been there because of, connect. I think it was 2012 to 14. He was probably there because of connections, for sure, that kind of thing. But was he, um, say, taking money on the side and things like this, other than his actual pay as a member of the board? Probably not, apparently. Um, so he's trying to get at Biden through his son Hunter. Um, but I think the crucial thing here is that the very first information that came out about this incident was a promise, an issue of a promise offered to a head of state. And I don't see that the extortion effort on Trump's part to Zelensky would have involved any kind of serious promises that would have upset this whistleblower. I think Zelensky's response, whatever, might have then helped Trump shape a response to Putin. That was probably, in Trump's mind, absolutely crucial. And uh, that may be what the whistleblower was referring to, and we have yet to hear any details in that direction. But that's what I suspect. I suspect there's another phone call going to be emerging here. Uh, the other element to this, of course, uh, to go back to the initial uh, the compl- uh, story about the whistleblower, yeah. uh, is that this whistleblower did actually follow. The, there's a protocol, I guess, for people that, that want to shed some light on on some concerns like this. Uh, he did through this, and this is now being stalled uh, mm-hmm. at the Department of Justice. They, they yes. will not allow this to go to the Congress, which is supposed to happen in situations like this. And, John, it's another example of, of William Barr now, you know, building up a firewall to protect his friend, the president. Yeah, Barr is part of the problem. There, there are certain key figures here who are very problematic and are actually allowing Trump to, to do this kind of stuff. Basically, Barr is breaking the law. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, 
this is um, something he's he's done before, or he's done he's come very close to doing it. Um, I I think that uh, one of the mistakes that Democrats have made is to talk about whether or not to impeach Trump. I think the thing to do is impeach some of his underlings. Um, and I think in those in certain instances, as with Barr, this would be a fairly straightforward process, um, and would not have drastic political ramifications, which just seems to be what they're worrying about uh, if they try to impeach Trump. Um, and Barr is actually breaking the law. This whistleblower has followed procedures to the to every every dot and jot, and uh, this is now a case of, of an administration that is no longer. Uh, uh, operating within the um, limits of uh, legality. We're getting so many mixed messages. I guess it's not unusual for, from the Trump White House, though, John. Because uh, last week when the story initially broke, the president said that no such thing occurred. This is all fake news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, but now he's admitted that, yeah, I had, I had a couple of conversations with the, the Ukraine president. Uh, but he, now he's insisting, yeah, but but I, I never mentioned anything about the aid package in that, and, and which I, some people find a little incredulous. But it, this is what we find with a lot of stuff, isn't it, though, John, that we start getting it, as you say, incrementally, piece by piece, one drip at a time, to say, oh, well, yeah, I know I said it wasn't true, but it sort of is. And, and maybe his worst yeah. enemy slash ally in this is Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, Giuliani really made a mess on his interview. <laughs> it's really sort of sad to watch. Um, yes, Rudy, Rudy is not an asset, and the quicker that Trump realizes this, the better. I think there's a number of things that, that people should realize here. Um, it, one is that Trump is, is debasing the presidency in a fashion that will probably damage it for generations to come. Um, and no matter who comes into the next next time uh, in 2021, uh, they're going to have a very wobbly boat to try to steer. Um, and Trump, Trump's blather is meaningless. That's another crucial factor. Uh, he'll deny, and then a few days later he'll say something. Uh, he'll actually admit something and whatnot. So we're in a situation in which uh, Trump's vocalizations are not much better than hoots and hollers. Um, and they don't really tell us anything. We have to wait and see. Um, and it's it's a broken situation. I, I think that um, the the Congress uh, is, is crippled in, in in a long tradition of letting things slide toward the executive. Um, and now they have no means of enforcing their decisions. You know, you, you get hit with a, a subpoena. You get hit with the contempt of Congress, whatever. Maybe there's a fine. How are they going to collect it? They don't have a way of enforcing their rules. And you can write all the rules you want. If you have no enforcers, you might as well write them in Babylonian, for goodness sakes. I mean, this is um, an example of, of uh, noble people trying to maintain the American institutions uh, with machinery that doesn't seem to be up to the job anymore. Uh, so this is a very disturbing situation. And I think this case, uh, and I do think that there'll be more, uh, some promise to Putin about how we'll handle uh, uh, Ukraine and, and basically get Ukraine back in the Russian fold, um, and this kind of thing, and uh, the money you know flowing from Russia. I'm sure the tax returns will show that as well. Um, that this is now a degree of corruption that, that is, is extreme. It can't get much worse than this. Um, and I think the other thing is it, you know, it puzzles me is that um, the Republicans traditionally represent the vested interest, the vested economic class of the United States. And surely they must understand that this president is discrediting uh, them as a social class. Um, and yet I don't see them actually taking any, apart from t people like Tom Steyer perhaps, see them taking serious steps to, to curtail this man or, or remove the man and put him tents, for example. Um, uh, this also puzzles me. I think there's a certain, I always had a, an adage, Bill, in politics, money makes you stupid. <laughs> and, uh, well, if that's the case, John, he's got a lot of money, so he must be pretty stupid. Yes, I think so. <laughs> so uh, money makes you stupid. And I think these people uh, have yet to sit up and sort of think, oh, what does this imply for us, you know, sitting here in Wall Street? And uh, the people, you know, uh, once they look past Trump and look at us, what are they going to see? You know, what kind of world will it be then? Um, 
But so, John, they, they inundate everybody with misinformation, though, to try to cover their tracks in situations like this. Uh, you know, Pompeo, Mike Pompeo, uh, was, was again going through the same talking points and saying, well, you know, we need to investigate this if uh, Joe Biden was try, trying to protect his son and, and did something untoward. Uh, the Ukraine government's already said nothing happened here, guys. It, nothing happened. We've already, you, you know, we looked in, there's nothing wrong. Nobody did anything wrong. If there were, we would have charged them a long time ago. Yet that, yeah. those are the talking points. And then you got Giuliani last week on his CNN interview, uh, not only doubling down on the accusations about what may have happened in the Ukraine, saying that, the, that Biden did the same sort of thing in China, too. That basically, he tried to create a picture here of Joe Biden going around the world with his son, uh, basically corrupting governments and, and taking money for himself. And there's no evidence of any of that ever happening. No, 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 no there isn't. Um, I think the one thing that uh, might be a slight red flag on the Ukraine thing is that the initial prosecutor, Yuri Lutsenka, uh, was found to be corrupt and was removed by the Ukrainian government. Uh, with finding some other organized, international organizations also attesting to the corruption of this particular prosecutor. And so he's removed, and, and then there were others. I think there were two more that came in, and uh, they cleared Biden. There was, there was nothing, uh, uh, there were no legal breaches uh, uh, for Biden. So I, I think that um, it's a standard Trump ploy uh, of Trump and his, uh, his uh, supporters uh, to... Um, um, basically, uh, project the the crime back onto the, the accuser, um, and uh, this is uh, this is nothing new. This is uh, something we've seen Trump do before. Uh, and Pompeo falls in line, and, and Mnuchin, and well, um, but there are other there are other interesting things, Bill, going on. For example, uh, it's clear they sh- they fired a warning shot across the bow of Mitch McConnell by pointing out that his wife's family is deeply involved in a big Chinese shipping firm and that she seems to be getting money directly as a result. And it passes on to him. So I think <laughs> I think that's a warning to McConnell that you are vulnerable um, and you have inappropriate uh, uh, connections or your, your family has inappropriate connections. Um, and then Lindsey Graham turned against Trump on uh, on Iran. I, I was astounded at that, saying that his position made the U.S. look weak uh, with the Saudi attack attack on Saudi facilities. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. Someone, someone like Lindsey Graham, who has done nothing but but uh, uh, be a cheerleader the entire time, now, um, uh, is now suddenly, oh, no, no, you didn't do this right, uh, Donald. <laughs> you screwed this one up. And I thought, hmm, that's odd. That's interesting. So there, there may be tectonic shifts going on that we should also watch um, that would indicate that, that there is going to be some kind of thing. And then Romney comes out and says, no, this could be extremely bothersome, you know, extremely worrisome. Well, the fact that he said anything at all, you know, he's just silent. Uh, well, he comes out and says something. Hmm? Well, maybe, maybe the ground is cracking underneath Trump. Well, and that's the question I guess everybody's asking. At what point are the the Republicans, especially prominent Republicans, especially in the Senate, uh, <clears throat> going to give up their, their, their undying support for Donald Trump? I mean, to a person, John, there isn't one of them there that didn't just disparage this guy when he was candidate Trump, say there's no way we want this guy as our nominee, uh, and now they've all fallen in line because obviously they fear that, you know, if we don't, then, you know, we're not going to get support. But at some point you got to say, hey, for your own political hide, uh, maybe he's a liability now. Yeah, I think uh, uh, exactly. I, I think don't think they're there yet, but uh, you, 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 as you say, there could be some cracks in that in that solid wall of support now. Yeah, we're not going to wake up and find them suddenly denouncing Trump. That that doesn't work that way. What you see is people starting to express doubts and starting, uh, as Lindsey Graham did, make an objection to a, a policy. Um, people who otherwise are, are you know puppets on Trump's knee. Um, so this is how it begins, and the only thing, Bill, that, that makes me wonder about all this is the time frame. This would have to unfold fairly rapidly this fall uh, if it's going to have any real impact. And I think there must be people in the GOP looking at 2020 and realizing if they don't put up somebody other than Trump, there's no way they're going to keep in power. Um, and I think that, that that may be also something working behind the scenes. But I do think that um, Trump is beholden to Putin and that Trump's view of Ukraine will be entirely to suit to whatever Putin wants out of it. And what Putin wants is a reintegration of Ukraine into the Russian economic sphere and political sphere. 
Um, so I do think we'll see we'll see an, another bookend. Uh, we already have had one pretty well put out there um, by leakers, and uh, I think if uh, uh, McGuire, I think McGuire is scheduled to talk on Thursday. Um, and if uh, he fails to show or his performance is not adequate, I think we may start getting leaks about yet another phone call uh, that was, I think, July 31st um, to Putin. And they've got a matter of record. Well, if it's a performance, if he does show, is anything like Lewandowski's was last week? I mean, it's going to be somewhat problematic. In a subsequent interview on CNN, Lewandowski uh, again swore up and down that there was no collusion and no uh, work at all between the Russian uh, government and, and the Trump organization. Uh, and uh, when he was reminded that the first two pages of the Mueller report said there absolutely was, he said, no, that's not true. And, he said, and, and she asked him, well, did you read the reports? No. So he, they, they just they just spew the same talking points that Trump comes at. It's the same thing with the, with what's happening with this whistleblower. The the storyline from the Trump administration now is that this whistleblower, whoever it is, was uh, just had secondhand knowledge of of Trump's conversation. Well, how do they know that? They don't know who the whistleblower is. But but everybody, I don't know how many times I heard that repeated by some of Trump supporters. Oh, it's just some secondhand guy. You don't know that. Well, if it's an intelligence uh, officer of some sort, uh, such a person is not going to make or initiate this kind of claim without first-hand knowledge. Uh, they're going to have probably some kind of transcript or recording of it. Um, and I think Trump has always underestimated the intelligence community. Um, and uh, I think that McGuire's days as DNI are probably going to be limited as well. Um, there was an interesting uh, interview on one of the, one of the uh, MSNBC, I think. So. They interviewed a former uh, inspector general um, for, uh, I think, the uh, uh, DNI. And this man basically uh, didn't talk to the moderator. He talked directly to um, McGuire, who, whom he assumed was watching the TV. And he was very harsh. He was very blunt. And... Um, uh, saying, you know, this is the kind of screw-up that we see with military people. They just think they have allegiance to the commander-in-chief when their allegiance is to the Constitution. And uh, I thought this would be the kind of thing where, you, you know, you take them out to the outhouse and then you explain to them the realities of life. Um, uh, so I think that uh, McGuire's uh, in a tough position. Apparently didn't want to be DNI. DNI is a very difficult position to be in. Um, and I do think that uh, we, we will see... Uh, well, we may see him crack on Thursday. Maybe not. Uh, the whole point here for all these people who maybe think they're in a position of glory and attainment and all this is that this can't go on beyond January of 21. Um, and that they're looking at a situation that is really quite short-term, whatever they think their advantages might be. And that goes for um, the McGuire and uh, the Attorney General and... and Mnuchin and Giuliani, whatever. Um, it, it's it's bizarre, but they have created a culture in which what you know, language means nothing. It's garbage. Exactly. And, yeah. John, we'll have to break it off at this point. Uh, we'll see what develops this week. It seems to change almost every passing day. Thanks so much for this today. Oh, you're welcome, Bill. John Coloroso. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.